And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Hello out there in Radio Land, and welcome to a special miniature episode of One Track Mind that I'm creatively calling OTM Mini. I am Ryan Luis Rodriguez, your wonky yet affable host and born-again cinephile. On OTM Mini, we give bite-sized little morsels that tackle movies we normally wouldn't get around to on the podcast proper, and this week is no exception. Likely my second favorite mini-subject so far, Walter Hill's truly original film, 1984's Streets of Fire. Hill has been adamant about not appearing on audio commentaries, and his discs are always pretty bare-bones, up until Arrow Video's reissue of The Warriors late last year, so it just wouldn't fit the parameters of the podcast. Thank goodness for minisodes. Here is the description on the back cover of the Shout Factory, now Shout Studios, 4K Blu-ray. Are you ready? Here we go. Amid a brooding rock-and-roll landscape, the Bombers motorcycle gang, led by the vicious Raven Shattuck, Willem Dafoe, John Wick, kidnapped diva Ellen Aim, Diane Lane, Man of Steel. Her hope for rescue lies with unlikely heroes. Soldier of Fortune Tom Cody, Michael Perret, Bad Moon, and his sidekick, the two-fisted, beer-guzzling McCoy, Amy Madigan, The Dark Half. Joined by Ellen's manager, Billy Fish, Rick Moranis, Ghostbusters, the trio plunges headfirst into a world of rain-splattered streets, hot cars, and deadly assassins. This cult favorite features a razor-sharp cast and original songs written by Jim Steinman, Stevie Nicks, Tom Petty, and Rye Cooter, and performed by The Blasters and The Fix. Directed by cult filmmaker Walter Hill, The Warriors, Southern Comfort, 48 Hours, Streets of Fire is a rock and roll shotgun blast to the senses. They ain't whistling Dixie. It's almost impossible to describe what the experience of watching this movie is like, but a shotgun blast to the senses is about as good as we're going to get. As addressed previously, Walter Hill was riding high on the success of 48 Hours prior to making this film, and that film's distributor, Paramount Pictures, was intent on retaining Hill on the payroll, even going so far as to secure co-star Eddie Murphy for a multi-picture deal, which eventually resulted in massive hits like Trading Places and, of course, Beverly Hills Cop. Hill, however had hurt feelings over his treatment during production of that film, and was still fuming over the studio's treatment of the Warriors, so he decided to change studios for his next picture. He brought along with him screenwriter Larry Gross, who was the final author of 48 Hours, even going so far as to be the scribe on set to be utilized at Hill's beck and call. Streets of Fire is something that built on the intricate world-building of the Warriors, taking place in some alternate dimension, described on screen during the opening credits as Another Time, Another Place. This would probably be annoying in anyone else's hands. Hill's studio of choice? Universal Pictures. He and the production of what would become Streets of Fire had a bungalow on the back lot. Unfortunately, that bungalow was in the flight path of the Universal Backlot Tram Tour, 
So they heard the same spiel from host after host about costume designer Edith Head, who reportedly resided not far away from their present location. The bulk of the information given by the disc is relegated to a Ballyhoo Motion Pictures documentary, which runs a couple of minutes longer than the motion picture. And it's exciting for me to announce this, because the head honcho of Ballyhoo, Daniel Griffith, actually appeared on this very podcast, back when it was known as The Coolness Chronicles, and we discussed his work on the DVDs for Mystery Science Theater 3000, the former subject of this show. Watching Streets of Fire is, as I explained a few seconds ago, a disorienting experience. It's been described as a living comic book with a classic Western structure, part musical, part pseudo-futuristic, despite boasting not a single laser sword, instead having its third act based around a sledgehammer fight between Michael Pere and Willem Dafoe that took six cameras, a hundred extras, and 11 days of shooting, something that is so absurd it could never happen again. There is definitely a lot of DNA of the Warriors in there, even going so far as to emulate what would eventually be the director's cut, which re-edited the film to incorporate comic book word balloons and ugly screen wipes, and has been, for a decade plus, the only version available on home video until last year's aforementioned Arrow 4K disc, which looks and sounds amazing, returning a genuine knockout to its roots. The techniques work better here because they're baked into the narrative. The editing uses transitions known as rip wipes, which incorporated scratching the negative with a razor blade on a mat, giving this jagged approach that lasts for basically the first 20 minutes, before taking a bit of a breather. And it's another one of those things that could get easily annoying, but never really does. What the film reminds me of, and note that I'm saying this is much better than what it reminds me of, Francis Ford Coppola's 1982 film, One from the Heart, which was shot on elaborate sound stages to depict a Las Vegas that was outsized, that never really existed this deliberate artificiality that put off audiences. So it's not a surprise that Streets of Fire, a neon-noir 90-minute rock video that takes advantage of the universal backlot and depicts some kind of parallel reality Chicago, namely the elevated train that towers above the streets, would be of a similar ilk. Of course, there wasn't actually a train. All train shots were shot in Chicago proper, but production designer John Vallone created retaining supports for the tracks that serve as quite the illusion. Also greatly enhancing the film were the considerable talents of cinematographer Andrew Laszlo, one of the old masters. Laszlo had previously worked with Walter Hill on Southern Comfort and the aforementioned The Warriors, on which his skills behind the camera were incomparable. Hill also wanted to make a fairy tale of sorts, which meant that there was no death or bloodshed, fully warranting a PG rating. This was a couple of months before Red Dawn had ushered in the official era of the PG-13, which Streets of Fire would have been issued if it was made today. 
and it does create a little bit of imbalance for the audience. Motorcycles are shot with shotguns and explode in fireballs, but the riders are always thrown clear and never dismembered or otherwise maimed. So the movie isn't perfect. The world of Streets of Fire was designed so that people over the age of 30 were rarely represented, giving this sense of youth, which I have compared to Charles Schultz's Peanuts cartoons if the teachers and parents were all cops and didn't speak in the way. The role of protagonist Tom Cody was offered to Tom Cruise and Eric Roberts, both of whom quickly took other gigs, Cruise most famously making Risky Business, which launched him as a star, and Roberts going down a career path that eventually crescendoed in A Talking Cat. The actor that eventually secured the role was Michael Pere, who never really did much prominent character work immediately following the film. And in fact, I know him best as one of the titular character's high school students in the television series The Greatest American Hero, which was also discussed when this podcast covered MST3K. Also up for Cody was the aforementioned Willem Dafoe, who eventually settled on the antagonist. And if you're going to have an antagonist, you can't find a better, more expressive face than Dafoe. He's so good at being scumbags that a performance like his in The Florida Project is such a knockout, a role that he should have won an Academy Award for. For Cody's paramour, the role was up in the air between a very young Diane Lane and, of all people, Daryl Hannah, eventually going to Lane, who was also up for the role of the mermaid in Splash. Lane, at that point, had played a rock star in Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, which I've never seen, and two Coppola movies that had not yet been released, The Outsiders and Rumblefish, which were shot back-to-back. For Cody's second-in-command, Hill cast Amy Madigan in a role that was written for a Hispanic man, offered at that time to Edward James Olmos, but was gender-switched during pre-production, which makes sense for the director considering that his rewrite of 1979's Alien transformed science fiction hero Ripley into Ellen Ripley. Although, to be fair, Madigan is never sexualized like Ripley is in the last 15 minutes of that film. For Lane's manager, producer Joel Silver was a big fan of SCTV. Join the fucking club, buddy, which led him to consider Rick Moranis, who had never been proven as a dramatic performer and is mostly the humorous backbone of the story. For one of Lane's compatriots, Hill cast the great Elizabeth Daly, who had just been in the masterpiece known as Valley Girl and would eventually play Dottie in Pee-wee's Big Adventure and, of course, Tommy Pickles in Rugrats. She was actually one of the few actors who convinced Hill to write an extra scene for her so that she wasn't, in her words, just a body. For Cody's sister, Hill brought back Deborah Van Valkenburg, who played the female lead in The Warriors and was originally the narrator of Streets of Fire, which currently does not boast any voiceover, everything having been scrapped after an early recording. In the script, 
Hill indicated that Streets of Fire was indeed the first chapter of a trilogy, going so far as to give the two potential sequels titles, despite never having worked out what they would actually be about. But this never came to pass. On a budget of a little under $15 million, it took home only eight, which is most certainly considered a bomb, but I would love to step into a time machine and watch it as it was meant to be seen in a theater in 70mm. But that was not in the cards. Granted, I was born two years after it came out, but whatever. That'll do it for now. Stay tuned for a full-blown episode next week, and two weeks from now, we continue the odyssey known as OTM Mini. Don't forget to check us out on the social medias at One Track Mind Pod on X. Ugh. One, that is the numeral one Track Mind podcast on Instagram, One Track Mind on Blue Sky on Facebook and Podchaser, or send an email for perhaps a future Q&A to One Track Mind Podcast at gmail.com. Also check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash onetrackmindpodcast for exclusive bonus content and every episode early. See you soon. Dawn, that's the end.